is where your your imagination, like it's the gym for mm. your for Im- your imagination. It goes to to be refreshed and and so forth. And not having that was just dire for for being able to create. Welcome to the Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Born in Sydney in 1963, Kathy Wilcox became a cartoonist in 1984 and hasn't stopped since. She's worked almost exclusively for the nine Fairfax newspapers and won a slew of awards, including Walkley Awards, the Stanley Award and the Cartoonist of the Year on three separate occasions. She's a children's book illustrator and one of Australia's most astute observers of political life. Kathy Wilcox, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. When did you draw your first cartoon? Um, well, I scratched something on the bedhead at rest time when I was around about two um, with, a, with a bobby pin. I chewed the plastic bit off the bobby pin, the thing that was meant to stop it, the bobby pin from scratching, and I found that I could make quite an adequate mark in the, um, in the beautiful polished timber bedhead. Um, and, um, and after that moment, when my, when my mother found that after rest time, um, she, um, she indicated by, by the way she behaved that that was not uh, an okay place to do my drawing, so I think um, I probably that probably put the idea in their heads to um, to provide me with paper to do my drawing. Um, you could have called it a cartoon. It might just have been, you know, like you know, like a cave painting kind of just a, just a just a, an attempt, an essay. Um, but uh, uh, beyond that, um, my first cartoons were uh, at art college. Uh, no, no. Um, first, first comic strip was in about year four at school, where we had hmm. to we had to do some kind of a comic strip. So I did a, a little superhero story that um, that I came across a few years ago when someone was asking me for evidence of early early work. Basically, it's hard to say when I drew my first cartoon, Andrew, because I've always been drawing in one way and another. Um, I'm not quite sure where to define the cartoon as such because I certainly drew things like that at school and I drew caricatures when I was at school and I learned that, that girls didn't like having caricatures, uh, unflattering caricatures drawn of them and that was a that was an important lesson. Um, my first published cartoon perhaps might be a, a, um, a notable moment. Um, when, when I was at art college I was doing uh, visual communications at Sydney College of the Arts and my um, and my part-time job was selling hats and overcoats in the men's department at David Jones in the in Sydney City, and um and one of my customers one day was um was a woman who bought a hat and handed over her credit card, and I looked at the signature on the credit card and I recognised this signature and I said, "Are you Jenny Coops, the cartoonist?" And she was absolutely gobsmacked to be recognised because she was the most unassuming and unpublic of, of people. But I, 
I was a keen follower of the newspaper cartoons and political cartoons, and and um, and knew her uh, her work very well. So so she was really chuffed to um, to be recognised on on the one hand, and um, and I used to spend a lot of my time because these these departments in uh, in a store were fairly slow business you can imagine that you know there's only so many hats and overcoats um people can buy it's not a place that really much gets a rush on um so I had quite a lot of downtime when I was there you know tidying up um, racks and so forth and um um you know finding pins in the parquetry and also occasionally thinking up my um my art college projects so so I could use you know use the 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 department store desk as a, as a handy place to have a notebook and and you know draw pictures of interesting looking customers or something as they as they passed by or 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 put down ideas for whatever project I was needing to be you know getting handing in the the following day uh, and hadn't started yet um and uh, so anyway, I had a I had a notebook with lots of drawings on it, and I and I was able to quickly slap that underneath Jenny Coops's nose and say, "Oh look, this is this is what I do," and um and she said, "Oh well, why don't you come in and um you know come into the into the offices of the Sun Herald, which is where where she worked in in the old Broadway um, monolith building there." Uh, and she said, C- "Come in and show some of your work, and I'll introduce you to the art director there, and you know maybe maybe there might be some work that you could do." It's amazing serendipity. So yeah, that's and and I kind of I kind of think that that is that's that's really my life actually. I have I have always had you know just um, I don't like to use the word luck. I think I think serendipity is is a, a much better word or, or good fortune. But I you know I I, I have there've been many 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 good turns where <laughs> you know okay that's. It was nice how that worked. So I went in, I met her, I met the art director, and then really short a short time after that, and it was before I'd finished at art college, I think, um, or yeah, either before I'd finished or only just after I'd finished, um, there was some day or two days that she couldn't work for some reason and they needed to call someone in at short notice, and they called me. And so this complete unknown who had, you know, a range of styles but no but no um no sort of definite kind of cartoon style as such, um, was asked to fill a whole lot of spaces. And some of them were, were there were about seven little cartoons I had to draw for a for a um a column that was about food and drink and, you know, cafes and all the rest of it. It was called Short Black. And I had two hours in which to produce seven cartoons for for, that, for those columns, so they absolutely couldn't be precious. They had they had I had to just churn them out quickly. And then there was um and then I think some some time later there was a, a a larger illustration to fill in. And really these these two opportunities, you know, I did them. I got to hand them in. You know, they they thanked me and off I went. And I think I probably got paid a little bit of money for these things. Um, and uh, and I got to see my work in print. It was black and white, and at the time there wasn't you know color available for all for all um, cartoons and, and illustrations. Um, but I got to got to got to have the experience, which I think was the the unspoken idea that I had, which was I would like to be in that place. I would like to be in that newspaper. I want to see. I would like to work in this somewhere. I would like to be doing, <laughs> filling spaces in that place somehow. I didn't know exactly that it was cartoons that I wanted to be doing. 
Um, I knew that it was drawings, you know, possibly captioned, you know, definitely with concepts. Um, and, um, and, and I just did have a real kind of affinity for the, for the sort of, for the daily, um, the fleeting, fleetingness of the daily newspaper, the, the fast fleeting subject matter and the, um, you know, the, the, the novelty and the, the, the liveliness of it and, you know, and all of that. So, um, the, and what it said also, I guess it was, it was very much, it felt like my culture. I'd grown up with that newspaper. I'd grown up in that place. This was a newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, um, that very much felt like, felt like a, a, a home place for me. So anyway, that was, that was really lucky. Um, it didn't immediately lead to more work, but in any case, I had plans after finishing art college that I wanted to go far, far away. Well, let me just hold you on that yeah. and ask you, because uh, yeah, I also grew up in Sydney and uh, read the Herald religiously during the ni- 1980s. Uh, and I remember the, the cartoonists that uh, that I enjoyed the most were Ma- Matthew Martin on Stay in Touch uh, and Tanberg. And uh, I remember getting a bunch of Tanberg cartoons and putting them on a, sco- a folder I had at school. And my, my favourite was uh, uh, Why the Hairy-Nosed Wombat is Disappearing. And it's a Tanberg cartoon of a hairy-nosed wombat seeing this big hair out of his nose and uh, uh, going up to the mirror and shaving it off. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so what were the, the main uh, cartoon influences on you? Who were the people that uh, uh, had the most impact as, as you developed your style? Uh, I think... First of all, probably there were, you know, well, I met, I'd mentioned um, Jenny Coops. Patrick Cook as well was mm. very was very much of a presence in in the papers that came home to our place and probably, you know, we bought collections if he if he did collections of work and he um, he was very darkly funny and and sort of in the years after art college where I I probably took these these favorite cartoonists of mine to um, you know, overseas with me, or showed them to other people. I had I had Patrick Cook, and I had books also by Lunig, and and um, I remember a French friend sort of observing that these these seemed to be like two very different ways of, of seeing the world, mm. and one was the one was the harsh, cynical, um, um, kind of brutal humour in in um, in Patrick Cook, and um, and Lunig. Um, was was at the, at the time you know much kind of gentler and more, you know the 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 word now which we've almost, we've almost you know got sick of but whimsical um, and um, and so these these two sort of ends of a spectrum and, and um, it did lead me at times to sort of think where where did I where was I going to fall in that in that sort of range of being. I mean, obviously there's many, there's a f- f- much greater and more colourful spectrum of, of possibilities, but I did I did see that that um, that duality for a while as being, you know, well, am I going to be the soft one or am I going to be the, the, <laughs> the, the hard, brutal ones? And yet when many people think about Lunig now, they would think about his uh, uh, critiques of mums who leave their, leave their kids in daycare or the, his uh, uh, playing footsie with the anti-vaxxers and would think about a sort of a harder edged, I guess, rather than just mm. the, uh, the soft duck lover of, uh, of, 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 uh, as he began. It almost sounded like a slip of the tongue there. But <laughs> 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 um, yes, uh, and which, which only goes to show that, um, that we don't just, we don't just stay the same we don't mm, stay the same mm. person and 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 life life forms us and like life makes us and um you know so 
So we end up reflecting that in, in, uh, in our work. Um, so, but uh, they they inf- influenced me. Matthew Martin definitely as well. When I when I first came, no, before I moved away. He, so he was doing the Stay in Touch cartoons when I was still at art college. And so the things that I liked about I loved about Matthew too was he played around with the medium of of cartooning. Now this was all gag cartooning at the time, really. That was sort of catching my eyes. I wasn't, um, you know, Patrick Cook was was doing political, so was Jenny Coops, but but Matthew Martin was doing these beautiful things, which you know I don't know your listeners may well may well recall or, or may not, but but they were all cartoons about nothing and anything there were whatever silly little overflow stories went in this column that was edited at the time by David Dale and but very prominent because it had the back page of the paper yeah right? yeah so and a lot it had of people it... would turn to turn straight um, and I think I always read the Herald starting at stay in touch that's right and it had a bit of a cult cult following too um and and so apart from the fact that that um Matthew Martin had a beautiful Pen line. There was a little bit the the descendant of a of a Patrick Cook pen line. I always sort of I always you know tried aspired to being able to do to do line work like like both of those. So Matthews was more was more precise, but he he was a master of the of of wordplay, but you know cleverer than just a silly than a, than a dad joke pun, and also he mucked around with the frames and and having things in and out of frames and playing with the timing because because. Because cartoons are, you know, if if they're about jokes, then jokes are about timing, and and so you you change the frame to 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 um to put a pause between the the the, the setup and the punchline and so forth. And he could muck around with that and and um and uh you know turn turn it around to his great joy. So so it was kind of I suppose you could you could say there was a there was a postmodern act, act um, aspect to it, but um. It was it was still very very funny, very wordy, very very clever, and uh, and so I very much admired um, Matthew's work. So, for someone who's looking to become a cartoonist, where did you pick up most of your uh, your, your skills? Is there uh, are there things that your parents created in that atmosphere? You're the youngest of, of three, aren't you? That's right. Um, were there things about your, your childhood or were there things that you learned from particular professors at Sydney College of the Arts that sh- shaped you? Um, where does where does Cathy Wilcox emerge? Um, I think it's a very... I, I couldn't say that it's a template that anybody else could necessarily apply to themselves because I think... And I think that's probably the case with... Um, with uh, you know many cartoonists, we all arrive by different different routes. Um, because I was I'm 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 a words person as well, and I'm a language person, and and I loved um, I loved French as much as I loved art, as much as I loved English and drawing and and humor and comedy and all of that sort of thing. Um, and and observational humor you know you know just kind of trying to understand why people are the way they are and all that sort of thing and the kind of quirky quirkiness of of humans um so so i guess i sort of you know all of those things came together such that without ever going oh i wish i could be a cartoonist it was well i want to work with with drawing because i love that probably the best but I also don't want to I, I can't imagine that I would be just painting paint doing paintings or something I, I didn't have I didn't feel like I had a, an, a, an endless well of 
of ideas just coming from myself that I needed to, you know, put on canvas or whatever. Um, I liked working with the material of the day. Um, and uh, so I guess from I, from the, the, the looseness of the art college course, which, you know, let's face it, for a Bachelor of Arts, it was kind of loose. Um, <laughs> what do you mean by loose, Cathy? Well, well, it was still in the early-ish stages of the, uh, of the Sydney College of the Arts Visual Communications degree setup, and uh, we were as much guinea pigs as, as anything, and so it, would, it, it could talk a big game, but it was hit and miss as far as, you know, whether you got, you, you know, there, it was mainly useful because there were some very interesting people who, who came and, and taught us, but there were also some, some, you know, some dire characters in there as well. Um, uh, and, um, and so by the, and by the third year as well, you know, they, they sort of, they gave us a spread of, we didn't all learn how to draw how to do drawings there was not like there was not a, a serious illustration course that that gave us techniques but there would be projects that would let us loose on things we got to do some life drawing and things like that and I you know I, I loved taking every opportunity to do all of that that sort of stuff which mm -hmm. I'd also had I'd also had a great art teacher in the last couple of years of, of school who who totally got me and and um kind of to lifted up the, the, the veil of, of kind of, I don't know, disappointment of, of all earlier years of art at school because because art at school before that always seemed to be like trying to draw, trying to paint paint things, pictures of things you weren't interested in with a, with a too thick paintbrush, uh, with, a, with a paint that didn't, didn't dry very nicely on paper that went curled at the edges and stuff like that, this sort of mm. horrible school art stuff and, and, you know, sort of painting dingy things that, were, that never looked how you wanted them to look. And then finally I got this, this, lovely, um, this lovely teacher who was also a, a, a puppeteer. She made, she made puppets and did puppet shows and things like that. And she was, so she was interested in faces as I was and she was also interested in, in drawing and line work and, and, mm -hmm. and everything that was human. And she got us to be able to do, um, uh, she got us permission to, to do life drawing in at school and stuff. So it was just me and a handful of other, of other girls who were, who were sort of given this, this you know, rather more sophisticated art, art training than, um, than, than they'd sort of thought to have in the school before because this woman just kind of went, well, this is clearly what these kids need. <laughs> um, uh, see, I told you I, was, I could be digressionary in my, in my conversations. No, it's great. <laughs> so then in your early 20s, you go off to, so early 20s, so off to, off to Paris. I go off to Paris um, with the very simplistic sort of motivation, apart from um, whatever was going on in my, in my romantic life at the time, also, the thought that I wanted to get far away from, from um, Sydney and and you know what school I'd gone to and what suburb I grew up in and all those sorts of little markers that seemed to North Shore, right? The North Shore, that's right. All those things that seemed to be such a um, uh, I don't know, such a such a sort of a, a, a dooming um, box. Of, of you know how you were defined and and the, the sorts of things people would ask us you know judge you on and I I was very sensitive to that and I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to be defined by other people in that in that way so I was really keen and and while others of my generation perhaps were, were heading off to um, London um, to have that sort of classic you know year or years abroad I um, uh, 
I also didn't want to go somewhere even when where they sat, spoke the same language because you know you could still end up meeting someone you knew you know who grew up in the same same suburb or went to the same school in in London so so anyway I thought Paris there's a place I love I love speaking French I'm sure that I would be able to get to be good at French if I went there and um and uh and drawing you know they have <laughs> they have wonderful cartoonists in France so so um you know that was the the right place for the uh, for the holy pilgrimage to <laughs> for a cartoon. do cartooning there I imagine, given your love of language, it would uh, be pretty hard to be cartooning in uh, in in French. Well, um, well, yes. I mean, a lot. I had to spend a lot of my um, of my first energy in well, in just setting setting myself up to live, finding finding a place to live, working out how how to do all the sort of visa business and and you know how I could. Uh, you know, legally qualified to live there as a, on a student visa, so I needed a, a student enrolment and stuff to make that happen. And so I, I, I found myself studying third year literature in, at university there because I'd somehow stuffed up whatever pre enrolment that, that was meant to be getting me into something that was rather more at my level. Um, and um, and so I was learning um, psycholinguistics and uh, and reading Stendhal and um, and doing comparative feminist literature courses and stuff with with um, with French people. This is pretty full on. <laughs> so even though even though in the, in my time there it was it was kind of just an excuse to be there legally, and and I wasn't you know I wasn't attending full time and I already had my jolly you know my my. For what it's worth, my Bachelor of Arts from from the Sydney College of the Arts, which, you know, it, it, it which has only ever served me to a get a French university enrolment and b get me, um, I think, a discount at the Sydney University pool. Um, <laughs> it's not, you know, no one has ever asked for my degree when <laughs> when wanting to know about my work, but um, but there I was in this in this course, and even though my French at that stage in that first year of of, um, of Paris was not good enough to um, to write. You know, you know, qualified essays. Um, I nevertheless learnt so much French. You know, my my French improved so much by being in that setting mm. of of hearing it well spoken, of being required to read books. I think it was it was one one week when I got a, a bad cold or something, and I was bed bound for you know for a week that I kept trying to read this novel. Um, uh, that we had to had to read for university, and I had been at the stage of needing to use the the dictionary all the time just to sort of you know read a bit, and then what does that word mean? And then, and somehow um, I don't know, a penny dropped or something like that, so, and I just kind of crossed a little barrier. At which point I could I could now read it without needing to, um, to keep on referring to the to the dictionary. So so it got me reading, it got me speaking, and then I ended up doing one presentation. It was in the comparative. Uh, comparative literature um, on um, on on feminist literature uh, with this fabulous teacher who was like she, <laughs> she was she was so French she had the she had the um, the, the the black um, fishnet stockings and the and the and the neat little shoes and the but the serious glasses and all the rest of it and it and the class was full of full of women except one man one guy in this class and he was the one who I think got top marks in the essay or something but we had to do one little sort of spoken presentation one day and I got up and did my spoken presentation and she told me that I had I had done most adequately considering <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> so I was I felt like okay well I've done I think I've done my thing here but meanwhile um, uh, I was also needing to get work 
Um, and I had been looking for work since pretty much since I'd got there. I, I had stumbled around sort of, you know, literally knocking on doors where there was something that said, you know, publications of illustration. And I went into this door and I said, oh, you do publications of illustration. I am an illustrator. (laughs) What can I do here? This is all in my stilted French, by the way. Um, And they said, well, we actually publish old illustrations. Like there's these old tomes of, you know, engravings and things like that. However, you know, they're probably laughing under under their breath at this, this, this foolish ingenue who stumbled through the door. However, there is a big book salon, you know, just in a couple of weeks, you know, here you'll find you go to such and such a station and, and you'll find it there. Well, this I discovered the Salon du Livre of, of, of Paris, which is just this enormous. It's one of the big book fairs they have. I think Boulogne is another big one, but it's where, you know, it's an, it's international. All of the publishers go, they put out their wares, they have their book signings and all the rest of it. Mm. So I went and that was only about in, you know, the, I don't know, third or fourth week that I was that I was in Paris that I was walking through this place and going up to going up to the counter where Sampe the 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 French cartoonist Sampe of whom I had you know many books and knew that knew the work well there he was signing books and (laughs) so I got to meet him and I got to meet Claire Bretichet um and uh and I also got to go from from publisher to publisher saying well this is you know I'm here I am from Australia I am looking for work in illustration and in book illustration you know and so they would say well here's the here's the person you ring or here's you know they'd give me the card and 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 it set me up for with for a couple of months worth of phone calls and dragging my very oversized portfolio of work around from door to door um and it was it was a you know rather comedic scene because I I totally came into it with the Australian spirit of well you just walk in there and you say hi here I am I'm ready to work for you and the French way was much more um well you leave your portfolio with the art director and um and then somebody will call you and you know they'll tell they will you know it was on their terms not on my terms but but I just couldn't see any way of doing it without actually wanting to be there to turn the pages and show the work and explain the the stuff and um it, it did leave some of these editors quite um perplexed because um because they would just sort of say, well, I can't really tell what you do because there's so many different styles here. But um, anyway, well, eventually one of these editors said, look, you know, we do, we have children's books and this and that, and you know, but we do also have an English language publisher uh, and they do uh, French, you know, magazines in French, no, in English for French kids learning English and we'll send you over there. So they sent me to that, to that lot and that was an office full of English speaking people. You know, English and Scottish and American and Canadian and Irish and all the rest of it. And suddenly they they looked at my drawings and they got my jokes and they, <laughs> they liked my style and they, they understood me. And so that was only, I suppose that was only after about, I don't know, two or three months that I'd been there. Mm. And they immediately gave me some work to do. So I started to, I think my first job was a was a, a magazine cover for, for one of their magazines. And they kept me in just about enough work. For, for what ended up being nearly three years in Paris. Um, also, I also ended up work, getting some work with another English language magazine too. Um, but it was just enough to get by, to pay the metro ticket, to pay the pool subscription, to pay my rent and food and, and you know, do little, do little weekend trips on trains and stuff. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I managed to survive on my art in, um, in Paris. And when did your style kind of set, settle in? The uh, you've got a what I think of as a very spare style of uh, of, of drawing. When did you uh, settle on the style that you've got now? 
that's probably when I first came back from Paris. I had done the few cartoons and things, but I, I, I started to go to, you know, knocking again at the doors of the, of the Herald as well as other magazines and book publishers and people. But the, the Herald in those days had, had editors of sections who had discretion with money and they could, they could pay cartoonists, they could pay contributors. Mm. So you'd go to a different, you know, to, to say the guide and talk to the editor of the guide and they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, we've got a couple of spots you could fill. Yeah, here you are, you know, here's the, here's the text, go away, get that in by Wednesday or whatever. Um, and, um, and, uh, and basically the fact that I had a single column, uh, you know, about a four four square centimetre hole to fill um, meant that there was not room for a great deal of, you know, visual expansion. So mm. I just sort of, you know, I suppose I, I returned to my roots and, and, the, and the, the drawing that I liked, which was that, that, that pen and ink style of, of Cook and Matthew Martin and, and whatever. And, um, and so, and I just sort of kept it to black and white like that. And also I found... I think in one of those early early cartoons, I sort of I, I found a little pun or a little little clever wordplay that that worked, and it was it was, um, you know, bad cocaine doctor. Yes, I think he must have snuffed it because there's a guy with a with a you know, <laughs> ten dollar bill rolled up at his nose and he's and he's dead, <laughs> and you know, and I just found that the the joy of the of the <laughs> of the wordplay that works with it, with a really simple drawing and that was all you needed to fill this tiny space and you could get it's a bit like you know if you kind of boil down boil down fruit syrup and eventually you get jam and it's intense mm. and it's and it's flavoursome you know the, the the smaller sometimes the the the, the, the punchier they could be because you, you know you could just and I and I also all I think of I'm of my time um in that um I kind of always be, I believed that uh, that that the less extraneous material, the better. I always sort of I I, I kind of like the 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 idea of communication being okay. Say what you have to say and get out of here, rather than rather than stick around and you know put all wallpaper and decorations and stuff like that. Cartooning is poetry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's a lot of what you leave off. So um, my sense is that a majority of journalists in Australia are women, but. Clearly, a majority of cartoonists are men. Uh, why is your discipline so male-dominated? Ah, uh, why indeed? And it's a question that that you know has been asked for for you know it was still an, it was a novelty back when I started, and that was you know thirty plus years ago, and it's and it still seems to be a bit of a novelty. Um, there are there are more women coming through, but so the thing about cartooning is though you kind of need you know you need a vehicle, you need a place for the stuff to to be published, um, and there are fewer and fewer. Um, you know, newspapers, for example, that that publish artwork, you've got, got a much better chance of, if you're if you're a you know if you like drawing and you're an illustrator, you've got a much better chance of getting work in in um, in books. Mm. So illustrating books is is a perfectly viable place for for an illustrator to, to work. It doesn't doesn't depend on the same daily daily thing. Um, also doesn't necessarily depend on on you know the humor I guess which which cartooning does to a to a great degree but you know it's a slow turnover cartoonists get in and they they hold their spot and they stay and they stay until they die of some <laughs> some you know get hit by a bus get a you know get get 
have a heart so attack, Carl dying. So male-dominated for the same reason that the most senior opinion writers are, uh, 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 tend to be men. Yeah, because they, you know, and, and, and I mean, you know, I can, I can, I can have some, I have some things to say about it. <laughs> um, I, 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 for example, um, my son, who's 20, it, it knows <laughs> we have this agreement, which is when I start being so kind of uh, wrapped up in my own stuff that I can't, that I'm no longer sort of seeing the world in a reasonable way you know when i when i become too self-absorbed and um and and uh i'm missing the zeitgeist sort of thing in my work you know basically when i start going crazy tap me on the shoulder and say step away from the drawing board mother (laughs) (laughs) he has he's he's only too happy to play that role he's he's always been a really good sounding board um he's very he's very sort of politically um he's a you know politically astute of you know a follower of of what's going on and stuff and and he's a great person to run stuff by and you say what do you think of that and he'll go or else he'll go yeah no that's that's um i think you've i think you've hit it there you know, I mean, I don't. I don't always ask him, and and he's moved out of house now, so so I can't ask him as much. But um, but you know, I mean, it's just the thing of. I think, I think you know, we're we're ha- we're going through a stage of reckoning right now with with the white male. Um, I too, am of a privileged group, and I cannot, and and I and I wouldn't be so, kind of I don't know, churlish as to try and try and claim some some kind of victimhood in being female for all of the privilege that I that I have but I think while people complain about you know wokeness and 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 identity politics and stuff I think there is a place for for recognizing that having the same voices hearing the same voices commenting all the time and being the ones that are putting out the opinion and so forth um you know that, that it's it's really not fine and not not okay because there's only so much space out there. So 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 my my kind of line at the moment is is put down the microphone, old man, and and walk away. You know you've had your say, and it's time to give someone else a go. That's that's how I feel, and I feel when we're looking for diversity in cartooning, I don't even feel that it's just a matter of of looking for diversity as in getting more women in. I think it's it's about diversity of getting. Um, younger people and people of different different cultural backgrounds and and so on. Just so you know, I think there's much more to diversity to than than just a, just the the old um, gender binary. So, um, also you know, like not everybody enjoys. Th- there's a certain character of doing character of doing like daily cartoons. There's I've known you know I have colleagues who have been doing it for a while. Um, who maybe are happy doing the little pocket cartoons, the little ones that fit in with the letters or something, who when they've had a turn to do the editorial cartoon, they go, oh, no, I can't do that. I just, it just, it kills me. It makes me too anxious. I can't, mm. I kind of fall apart. I did it for a while and I couldn't do it anymore. Other people have, you know, walked right away from cartooning because they can't stand that that pressure, that anxiety, that that deadline stuff. Um, and uh, And meanwhile, you know, I, somehow I thrive on it. Somehow I like it. <laughs> so I don't know whether that is a thing which, you know, maybe that's a more, I don't know if that's a more male thing to enjoy that, that 
I tell you what, I'm, what might be a male thing is the show-offiness of a cartoonist because you're a, you know, when you're a cartoonist, you're going, look at me. You're going, look at this thing that I did. You know, here, give me a reaction. I want a, <laughs> I want a reaction now. You know, you being that that kid who takes the picture up to show to the adult because they want to, they want the approval for it. So I'm perfectly prepared to admit that 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 you know, cartooning is is an art form that is that is you know, crying out for <laughs> crying out for attention. It's attention seekers and and people of short attention span who um you know who need the subject matter to, to change all the time and you know maybe maybe uh, maybe that's more of a man thing than a woman thing I don't know but you know hey women of women make it in comedy because many or many more women make it in comedy because comedy is 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 doesn't have just a set of people here of the same people we use all the time mm. comedy is a matter of you know you go up on the stage you say your thing uh, and if it works then we'll we'll ask you back you know or someone will ask you back so I don't think of you as your cartoons as sort of coming from a particular ideological stance, except that you do seem to have a very strong bias in favour of little people against big people. Uh, you seem very aware of uh, punching up, not punch, uh, punching down. Is, is that how you, how you think about the world? Um, yeah, it is, actually. I mean, I know it might, you know, these days it would probably be described as woke and politically correct, but I do... I, I've always been kind of conscious of, of um, I don't know, when things aren't fair. And, um, and when I, like, I, you know, I couldn't, I sort of, as a child, I just couldn't understand racism. How could you, you know, how, but how could that person be, you know, you treat them worse because they're of a different colour or background. I just sort of, you know, in that in that childish way, it would seem mm. senseless. And also through through my time overseas as well, and you know, possibly art college before that, but more overseas, I also made I made some really um, significant friendships from people who were from you know very different walks of life, mm. and um, a lot of my struggling to get away from you know my my neighborhood and my school and my and that you know that given identity of of um of childhood and teenagehood a lot of my struggle to get away was was in a way got wanting to go out and test these uh, these um these givens that my my parents and my upbringing had given me of the you know these people are all like that and if you don't if you go there that's too dangerous you shouldn't go there and and to me it was a little bit like the the, the sort of the wall um, you know like a Truman Show sort of thing you don't don't venture beyond that beyond that wall because you know, there be monsters or whatever and I was uh, you know I probably put I put myself in some dangerous positions sometimes because I was an ingenue you know I mean I still am just <laughs> try try and sell me something <laughs> I'm I'm a pushover but um but also I met um I met a great many people and I and I just found that a hell of a lot of the things that that I had been taught um about people you know from other places or people less less well off or or whatever just so many things were were just not true and um, and and you find humanity everywhere, so so, and I can and I can see more and more how how much a system <laughs> gets reinforced. You know, I in the past would have very um, uh, loudly stated that I didn't think that that you needed any kind of um, affirmative action. Say, you know, I I never never got my work through being. Um, 
you know, through needing anyone to let me in for being a woman because I just I felt that my work spoke for itself and that was it and it didn't matter whether I was a woman or a, or a man doing this work and and therefore, um, you know, therefore you don't need affirmative action. But, you know, now I'm a little bit older and I've, <laughs> I've ventured out into the world and I can I can see that, you know, that it's it's all very nice. It's, you know, it's nice for me to feel proud that, like, I got that all on my own on my own terms but you can't take away from the fact that also I had you know a good education and 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 you know the 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 confidence um bestowed of of knowing that I never really had to go without even even in in faraway Paris um with you know uh, eking out my illustration work to be able to pay the rent and you know and the train ticket and stuff like that I was never really going to be down and out because I could always come back to, my, you know, my parents had money. I could always come back. I would always have, have someone to catch me. Mm. And, and yet I had friends and I still do have a, a, a wonderful um, friend who's still in France, um, my, you know, my dearest friend in the world, Claude. And she, she just never, she didn't have any of that. And she and other, other friends of mine who, who don't have that, that, um, you know the safety net or the or the or the 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 soft the soft landing you know possible, and yet they kind of somehow pull themselves through. You know, my friend Claude finally at the age of sixty got got permanent work. She had been getting by on temp work and this and that, and a person of great education and great great um, um, uh, culture, but. But not with any of the of the family money behind her, and also not with the with the family reassurance. She had, you know, she was she was an unwanted kid because you know she came late by accident or whatever, and she was reminded of that all her life. So, yeah, sure, I, I'm I'm a bit interested in punching in punching up rather than punching down because I just don't think that you know I don't think that the, that the poor are deserving. <laughs> sort of thing. One of the other things that's presumably shaped how you think about the world is the fact that you gave birth to two boys and now have a son and a daughter. Uh, tell us about that. Right. Well, um, yeah, that's right. Um, and you don't you don't certainly um, plan for that. And uh, I don't think so. My daughter who I refer to as my daughter now because that's who she is and and how we're comfortable to refer to her. But that was um, up until the final year of school. Um, she went to a, a boys' school. She, you know, she was my son as far as we all knew. And she just announced to me sort of one afternoon early into the final year of school that, um, that she was in the body, in the wrong body. And that um, and that that this was causing her some suffering, and um, and that she felt that she needed to be a girl, and that she was a girl, and that she needed help. How did you feel in that moment as a mum? Did you fight it? It takes your breath away. Mm. It takes your breath away because a lot of a lot of things around that um, get sucked into the moment. You suddenly have all these other things that have just happened around this moment that 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 point to this moment, and <laughs> I, we'd had this weird thing happen where only a week or so ago, uh, before that, I'd been to a 
film, a French, French film festival thing, and there was a, a movie called uh, My New Girlfriend, and it was all about a guy whose wife dies and he has a tiny baby to look after and then he starts putting on his wife's clothes because the baby is not happy feeding from him but he the baby responds to the smell of his wife's clothes but then he puts on the clothes some more and it turns out by the you know as the story unfolds that in fact he's he has always had this feminine side to him and he then you know proceeds to you know find find himself and then transitions to be to be a woman in the in the film and and, and it's also part of the relationship with him and him and another woman in there and, and so forth so that's all by the by but but anyway uh, coming home from that film and talking at the dinner table I happened to say oh to, to my daughter oh you know to my son at that stage you haven't been fishing around in my in my in my wardrobe any time lately have you and um and and my son said, I can neither f- confirm nor deny in a joking way. It was all in, in humor and, you know, this conversation just kind of, you know, ran its course. But there was that line. But then when this confession came out, only such a short time later, she said, it's, in- it's uncanny how you can put your finger on a thing, Mum, because when you asked that question about whether I'd been fishing around in your wardrobe, it was two hours after the first time I had ever fished around in your wardrobe. <laughs> so, so, and another thing that had been happening at a similar at the similar time was that um, I had been I'd made friends with the person at the gym where I went to you know been doing Pilates for forever, um, and uh, and and this person at the gym had over the years that I'd been there. Uh, and a person of you know similar age to me had transitioned from male to female, and I had known them, you know, less so when they were a man. But sort of f- for some reason we got talking, and before you knew it, I was having conversations with this, with this this woman, and I was, and in my mind beginning to make the sort of leap where you go, oh, okay, I see how this is not about how. I feel about this person. This is not about how whether I perceive them as to be, you know, being sufficiently convincing as a woman or, or, or whatever, or if I feel that their voice is this or that or that they're, you know, you can still see that they're manly in this way or whatever. It's not actually about me. It's how this person feels. Mm. And so so that, is, again, was really quite quite a short time before this moment with, with, um, with my daughter. And... Um, so it was. There were just these indicators that okay, I, I will t- totally admit that I didn't sort of suddenly run in and say, "Yes, darling, off we go to the shops to buy you frocks." I sort of, I did have to say, "Whoa, you know, slow down," because also she's she's the kind of brainy person who, um, you know, said, "Well, I've done the research, and all we need to do is this, blah 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 blah." You know, she suddenly spilled out this you know list of of processes, and I had to go, <laughs> "Wait, um, you know, we have to." we have to investigate this luckily she was she wanted you know she she could see that she needed help she needed psychological help to be able to work it out and try and understand this and um and i could see that the that the best thing that i could be was was supportive and that even if i had my own feelings of of you know like you there's a kind of bereavement or a, you know a, a deep shock and a sense of wanting to go back over everything that's happened in the past and and ask yourself if it's something you've done 
or ask yourself if, if you know if this could be true or not or, or you know you do you do wake up a few times thinking you want to turn turn back time and put mm. things back to how they were um, but I understood th- that those were my problem they weren't the problem of my, of my daughter that that was my stuff to deal with and, and I understood that also because I had been through a kind of a uh, I guess breakdown during you know quite some years earlier like 20 no um 15 years earlier or so when my when my younger child after my younger child was born I had a sort of I suppose you know like a postnatal depression or 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 a a sort of a a a breakdown where where um where I lost myself and had to put myself back together so I I very much understood the the process of um of identity crisis and seeing my daughter in, in those terms and going well she's now lost she's lost sense of who she is she's trying to work out who she is I mean you know I teenagers very often go through identity crises that's why teenagedom is so so very um, you know so very fraught and so it's often so very dark because they are trying to work out who they are and often being told no you're not you're not that thing we're telling you that you're this thing and I understood enough from my own process and my own, you know, the psycholo- psychological, you know, an- analysis that I went through to know that there was absolutely no point in telling my child that they weren't feeling what they said they were feeling. And then, you know, I knew that it wasn't, if, if they are experiencing this, uh, this sense of identity, what, what they need more than anything is help getting back to what feels like solid ground where they feel like they know who they are. Mm. So so that was kind of, you know, that, that was what informed our, our approach and we felt like, okay, well, well, we'll do what it takes. We'll take the time that we need to take because, you know, we couldn't, we didn't want to hurry it. We had to, we had to beg her forgiveness for, for like not rushing things because we said we would have been, we would be irresponsible if we didn't, properly investigate this mm. but in any case um the the protocol of um of transition for um you know she was under 18 at that stage just under 18 at that stage the protocol is is fairly is fairly thorough such that you you don't just go and race into this thing and I thought it was much better that she had our support and love than than that she just felt you know, miserable miserable and and lost and um all all is well and my and my lovely daughter is is you know she's a happy happy person ensconced in a relationship and and uh yeah how did her grandparents respond so the grandparents that was interesting um my uh, i was terrified at how they were going to take it my parents are a conservative you might have gathered from earlier in the conversation that that you know grew up on the north shore had com- conservative parents and and so forth and um and uh, and my dad had spent a lot of um, a lot of my life, you know, giving an giving me an idea of what he thought a man's man ought to be. Uh, so he had very very strict ideas about about masculinity, and he was he was always a bit disappointed that my my boys were not manly boys. They didn't want to play football. They were <laughs> they were a bit bit a bit soft and artistic and and brainiac and whatever. They weren't his kind of his kind of kids already. So I you know I already had that sense, but um, I was you know working at how I was going to break it to them at some point, and uh, and it was my mum who just happened to step on the 
on the on the you know she kind of walked in and, and asked me how I how I was going or how how my child was going with the HSC and everything and and that's when I kind of fell apart and <laughs> said well that's not the, the HSC that's not the half of it and you know bawled my eyes out and told her what was going on and um and you know the, the my mum did the very best thing that she could possibly have done at the time which was just to to, to say well well you love your child whoever they are and it was just this wonderful just moment of of this love and and you know an embracing kind of forgiveness that mm-hmm. uh, of or acceptance and saying yeah we'll you know we'll work this out um so then at various junctures um my dad would just you know, uh, he'd be told about it, but he would find it hard. You know, he would, he would, he would go. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Why can't they? Blah blah blah. Um, and um, and there were a couple of times of of you know a, a, a fateful night of um, of going out to dinner when the HSC was over, going out to dinner, and I had warned my parents that that my daughter would be coming as a daughter. It would be the first time that she had dressed with my par- in the presence of my parents as a girl, not a boy. And I sat there with my daughter on one side and my dad on the other side of me at the end of the table uh, trying to animate a conversation between them and feeling this this awful awkwardness. On the one hand, my daughter feeling feeling hating me because I'd forced her into this this awkward position and on the other hand, my dad just just looking everywhere but but at my daughter because he just found it too difficult to, to, to manage. And when mm-hmm. she got up and went to the toilet, he said to me, I just can't, I can't do it, as in, that, as in being able to, to call her by her name. And... Um, and uh, so a little bit later, I um, a couple of weeks later, I, I talked to my mum and I said, oh, I'm so sorry to, you know, that, to, put, to put dad through this. I know that it's, you know, it's just so far off his radar. How, how on earth can he be expected to accept this? And she just said, don't you worry about him. That's not your problem. He will cope. And I loved again. That was that was you know st- she stepped in again with this this lovely way of as as my parent taking a burden off my shoulders and going, mm. that's not. Mm. You know, you don't have to worry about that. You know, here at your, your, your basic principle, you love your child, and on the on the other hand, also you don't have to worry about sorting everybody else out. <laughs> that was pretty damn, pretty damn fine stuff. Um, and um, so uh, it took some months on from that, but we had a family lunch, and. Uh, that was when, and we had, and I had also my brother and sister and their families there and stuff. And Sophie was there as Sophie, and um, at that t- table, that was when my um, my dad um, reached across and said, uh, "Can you pass me the butter, Sophie?" And it <laughs> it was felt. It was really felt, um, you know, between <laughs> between many of us at the table. That was that that was a moment that. You know that here was this here's this old bloke, um, you know, with his with his set view of the world, and he's you know, and he is and he is very set in his ways. He's 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 like a big old ship, but I also learned that that that, that big old ship just sometimes needs a bit of time to turn around. Um, and uh, you know, he was he, he's been. <laughs> I think when I told him my son was bi, it was like, oh yeah, what else? <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's such a beautiful story, and and just a reminder too that uh, change takes time. 
Change takes time. And I had to, I had to say that also to my daughter um, because she was, you know, when, when people are going through that identity crisis, they can be very quick to hop on the, up on the, the, the activist bandwagon and, you know, say, um, this is not, you know, this is not good enough and these people need to change and this needs to change and they need to cast a trans person in that role and, and, and they want the change order to be coming immediately and also they want people to, you know, people to be punished sometimes for not being, mm. being correct about that. And, and early on in the piece I said to Sophie, you have to remember to cut people slack. They, that, that, you know, everybody, everybody takes time to change. Of course there are people who won't and, and you can't do much about that and that's, you know, pity them. But, but you know, count on it that, that, that many people of goodwill are capable of, of change, especially, and this is a thing we really kind of observe through, through this time and other things in, in our family. Um, you know, sometimes on, with conservative people, um, the, 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 what's, what's true in principle is not necessarily true in, in, in fact. And, and they might hold these, these sort of strict ideas about, well, you wouldn't allow that and no, that you couldn't mm. do that. But as soon as something, you know, as soon as it come, they come in contact with it sometimes in their own real lives and they're confronted with the fact that, well, this person who, you know, last week I knew them as, as Oscar and this year, this week I know them as Sophie and, and by and by they're actually just the same person. <laughs> um, um, all right, might, might not be as simple as that, but, but you know, it, it, it takes sometimes having uh, I talk of it in terms of the difference between knowing something in your head and, and knowing something in your heart and when you know something in your heart it's it's had a chance to sink down it's had a chance to touch you and it's had a chance to um, um, kind of inform you in a way that it's that it's not about how clever the argument is it's about that you can feel what's true to me, it was one of the geniuses of the same-sex marriage campaign. That, could, that campaign could have been run uh, as, a, as a very angry, righteous campaign, saying, if you don't let me marry the person I want to marry, then you're a bigot. Uh, but instead, it was run through the frame of uh, a politics of love. Uh, and you just you saw the incredibly rapid change in Australian social, social attitudes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could, you could just, you could feel attitudes changing in a way in which I've never seen on any, any other issue yeah. uh, because it was a kind of big tent loving approach to, uh, to, to change rather than a kind of, I'm going to hit you with a big moral stick if you don't agree with me kind of yeah. approach. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, I want to wrap up by asking you a couple of questions I ask all my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, watch out for people with charm. <laughs> Did you, were there particular charmers who caused you problems? Ah, uh, yes. So that's a whole other, <laughs> a whole other story. I've, I've definitely been, um, susceptible to charm in, in my life. And, and I think it's, it's one of the things that, that continues to fascinate me. Don't you miss out on some great stuff in life if you put up the the guard against charming? Oh, I'm. Uh, that's a really that's a re reasonable point, and I wouldn't say. Um, I wouldn't say deny charm. Um, I just say be aware of it. I mean, look, there's something about when you go to France, for example, and I've had this conversation with with other women, um, that. There's there's a flirtation in in interactions when you go to France that is completely absent here. Now, 
that catches you out when you're a young, <laughs> when you're a young, you know, a 21 year old ingenue because you you do not see it coming coming. You haven't been trained to that in in mm. in Australia where everything is, you know. I mean, like, okay, the the world is different now than it was, you know, whatever 35 years ago. But um, but even still, there is a there's a a certain electricity and curiosity and and charm can come into play there because it's it's you're you're curious to know something about the other person and you're curious to know if you can you know find that in that person or if they can find it in you and so there can be an interesting dynamic and back and forth and i and i can see that 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 you know to deny to deny that electricity is is it's sad <laughs> um um but also, you come away from a, from a few weeks in France, and you go, "Oh God, I'm so tired." <laughs> because not and no, just because playing that dynamic is 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 exhausting, and and feeling like you can just be left on left to yourself here is is um is kind of it's also a, a much more comfortable way <laughs> to be in some in some ways. But anyway, no, I just think charm is really I think it, it's fascinating because I think it's at work so much of the time and especially in politics i think you know the charm the x factor the thing that makes people popular in spite of their lying in spite of their deeds in spite of you know the trail of destruction they leave behind them they can stand up and sound convincing um and and people fall for it again and again and again and i and i don't exclude myself from being in that way susceptible but i but i notice it and i go oh you know, isn't it interesting? You know, I can still, I can see how that charm works. And it's, and um, yeah, so we all kind of want to fall in love all the time, <laughs> is my conclusion. <laughs> What's something you used to believe, but no longer do? I used to believe in God, and I don't anymore. I used to, I used to. When did that change? Uh, at the same time as I had my um, uh, postnatal identity crisis. God was one of three things that, that, um, that that went and I I felt they were like this is this is really you know like you're wanting a whole other conversation but it was like okay I like I had I feel like I had three pillars and one was my mum and one was my best friend who lived in Sydney and and one was this sort of belief in God that you know God would see me through and it was very much that daddy God in a way that you know that being I'm I'm okay I'm being looked after my mum got very sick she got pneumonia and and pleurisy and she was in hospital and suddenly she was off off the job of being able to be supportive to me with a with a new tiny baby my best friend moved town so she was no longer there to be able to call on while I had this tiny baby so I didn't like these these main supporting these supporting things and then and then God <laughs> was not there to sort of, and I, you know, I'd done a bit of reading and whatever, and I think it was was um, I'd read about read uh, Bishop Shelby Spong, and he he uh, deconstructed the deity, and he reconstructed it in another way to be a sort of what he I think he called it sort of like a god of all beingness it was much more of a of a beingness and a connectedness and all that sort of thing but all it did was just kill do- kill god <laughs> for me Bong did exactly the same thing for me right I'm like yeah yeah it's you know once you're at this stage then uh, then then st- it's just it's not that far away from uh, from atheism was my view when I was re- reading yeah, his stuff right and um and so, so I'm. I was really surprised at what uh, what a 
hard thing it was to lose because, but it was just one of those things of where, you know, lies with an identity crisis, you know, things that you always thought to be true aren't or you can no longer find them to be to be so. And so it does, you know, cause you to question all sorts of things. And it just so happened that this whole thing happened not that long after 9-11. And so the dreams, um, apart from my terrible insomnia that lasted for quite a while, but the, but the dreams I did have were being on top of the building that was crumbling and, <laughs> and falling un- underneath. So, so um, yeah. Can I tell you about how how good dreams are though? Please. <laughs> well, insomnia was a big part of my of that identity crisis back back then when when my son was was uh, about one, and and I learned how apart from needing sleep to um, to function so that you wouldn't have a car crash and kill your baby, um, and that you could still function, having sleep meant that you could dream and and dreaming is where your your imagination like it's the gym for mm. your for ima- your imagination it goes to to be refreshed and and so forth and not having that was just dire for for being able to create it was it was it was a really awful <laughs> really awful thing for 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 you know when i live when i inhabit um you know cre- being creative is my daily daily exercise yes. of, of mind and and having that feel, feel like it's absent is just it was just terrible so so um yeah dreams huh when are you most happy um i'm i'm pretty happy like most of the time really um but i would imagine like it's when you've just nailed a great cartoon oh yeah yep 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 because it can be dire before that if you call me and it's before deadline and i haven't got it that is it that is a bad time to call me uh, yes, when you just when you just nail it and you go yes, <laughs> little fist pump and and uh, and send that off and um, uh, that is a that is a happy moment. But um, do you know I think actually I really I noticed that I was really happy last around the around about last Christmas, and we had um, I had a friend and my kids and my husband and. Um, I think the kid, well, my daughter had her friend there too um, at a holiday house and it was just being around them, just being around them and, and I noticed that they were all perfectly happy among themselves. They were, you know, colouring in or doing puzzles or chatting or being, you know, funny or whatever and I was really conscious that at that moment I didn't, I was not responsible for anybody else's happiness in that room, and they were all okay. Um, and I, and that was a, that was a pretty happy moment, Andrew. What's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? You've mentioned swimming a couple of times. Is that part of your yeah, yes. routine? Yes, swimming is mostly part of my routine. Walking is a big part of my routine. I, I walk, I walk the dog every day and and the dog is a big part of my routine as well you know she's it's a she's a fluffy little little um schnoodle and um and she has uh and she's you know way louder than 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 I should have ever let her become but um but I knew that when I invited a dog into my life that that would be inviting some chaos into my life and that I think it's important to have some some unpredictability <laughs> and some chaos that that sometimes ends up doing the deciding for you. So, um, yeah, so, so no, that, having a dog 
getting me out, getting me out into the world. I really didn't suffer over over lockdown because I would go out the door every morning with this dog, and with the dog you meet everybody, and I know everybody in the street, and I know every every other dog owner in the neighbourhood, and um, and uh, and I'm never alone. In a way, I'm happy in my in my I'm ha- very happy in my solitude, but I'm also I never feel I never feel lonely now. Finally, Cathy, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I've always, I, I think that honesty is really important. Um, as my mum was, was declining with dementia, um, she died earlier this year and, and, um, and so I could no longer have, you know, big chats with her. But as her memory went... I could still have kind of more philosophical conversations with her than I could have factual conversations, mm. like you know, earthly conversations with her, and and uh, and I reminded her that, um, you know, I said honesty was pretty important to you, wasn't it, Mum? And she said, Oh yes, absolutely. You know, because I certainly got that I think from her that. It would not have crossed my mind to tell her that I ate my lunch when I didn't or something like that. It wouldn't have even crossed my mind not to eat the lunch that she, that she made for me. But, like, I had a, a, really, um, a really strong sense that it was really important to tell, to tell the truth. And, um, and that is, you know, okay, I, you know, I may have... I tell you know tell the little the little kind of white lies of uh, you know I'm a bit busy at the moment I can't talk on the phone or or those sorts of things but but for for things that that matter um I think honesty is really important and I and I've made a real point of that with my kids um such that I've been you know shocked if they've ever come home telling about some other friend who you know did did something you know that was shady or something like that I go I don't want you just dismissing that as as it didn't matter. That's that's dishonest and that's you know not on. And um and I think I think it's really the only kind of port to you know only thing to hang on to in a time when when we're being sort of softened up to accept looser and looser um, um, ethics uh, you know ethical behaviour among our the power you know our powerful and our and our leaders that you know thanks Donald Trump but also you know thanks thanks a, a lot of people in 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 politics um and business who who have just kind of gone oh look everybody does it it's not you know oh look you just you just got to play this game this is how you got to got to play it i could i am still the 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 7 year old who says but that's just not right um, so I think that is probably my, yeah. I think you, if you stop feeling that that's wrong, I think that then then there's kind of no limit to you know you just your, your little boats just become untied and you're just gonna float out to <laughs> float out to sea. How do you how will you ever know what's what's right if you if you if you give up on that? Kathy Wilcox, uh, cartoonist extraordinaire. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and um, and I probably owe you because this has been like a you know a, a psychology session. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I've loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation. If you like this episode, 
I reckon you might enjoy past conversations with Marcus Zusak, Tim Minchin and Julia Gillard. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd share the wisdom of the Good Life podcast with more people in your life. Mention it to them, put something in your social media pages, rate the podcast. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.